Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bring, bring it Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Smith, head stuff at Burnley. I write and edit the non-in-ever newsletter, which goes out every Monday via Substack, and it's free to read, so feel free to subscribe. Hi, everyone. I'm Sam Carp. I'm a Crystal Palace supporter, um, sometimes writes for the Eagles Beak, and you can find me on Twitter or X, if you're calling it that these days, at Sam underscore Carp. I am Steve McGookin, a Tottenham fan based in Belfast, and in a previous life, I was the chairman of the New York Spurs Supporters Club. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today, guys. Um, just a bit note for the folks at home, if I sound a little sleepy or slur my words at all, uh, I got a concussion last night doing yard work. And um, while the independent review panels in the NFL and Premier League often come into question, I didn't even have one of those to clear me for this podcast. So any slip-ups, please excuse me. Uh, although my wife did try to get me to say the intro to this very show as the sentence she kept trying to get me to say <laughs> after the incident. Because she's like, you've been saying that for 10 years. Surely you've got this. Um, but anyway, enough about me. Let's get into the show. Uh, obviously, the huge match I'm sure everyone will be talking about um, was the Arsenal-Manchester City one. Uh, so I guess I'll just leave it to you guys. Talk about a little bit uh, what, what your thoughts were from the match and any overarching takeaways that, that you've taken away from it. Yeah, just to kick things off, I don't have a concussion, so there's no excuse for me if I make any mistakes. That's just me being rubbish. <laughs> um, I thought it was a, an interesting game. I often find now that these really top-level matches between the elite sides that are challengers, they more resemble chess than football these days. There's a lot of both defences holding the ball and waiting to to see which pawns are going to move and press and then try and go around them. Um, and a lot of the match was basically an arm wrestle with lots of fouls. Not much happened until until the end and Arsenal found a way to win it. Um, I think it was impressive mentality from Arsenal, but I think the, the key factor in the result was probably Manchester City continuing to miss Rodri. I think it's become clear in the last few weeks when Rodri's been out that he's arguably their most important player now. I rate Rodley very, very highly. I think in his position, he's probably the best in the world. For his age, he's an extraordinary talent. You'd think he's going to continue to get better. Defensive-minded midfielders normally peak later in their careers. So the fact that Rodri's relatively young for that position, I think, is a sign that he's going to dominate that position for a long time. Um, Arsenal obviously missed Bukayo Saka as well. So both teams had a key player out. But I think Rodri is essentially the linchpin for everything that City do. 
And for all Pep Guardiola's tinkering and plans and deep thinking about the game, he doesn't really have a backup for Rodri. He clearly doesn't trust Calvin Phillips. Um, Bernardo Silva seems to be playing at the back of midfield, which is quite interesting. Um, and City look a, a bit vulnerable right now. Obviously, Rodri will be back from suspension, but when Rodri's not there, it clearly opens the door for for other teams. And going into the international break, it looks like we've got a really good tackle race on our hands. I think a lot of people thought City won the league three years in a row. It's going to be a procession, they'll win it four years in a row, but the weakness is there and other teams will be looking at them and, and see that there's an opportunity there. They've lost the Wolves, they've lost the Newcastle in the Carabao Cup, now they've lost to the Arsenal. There's a chance there for, for something very exciting to happen, particularly for a Spurs fan, eh? I get too carried away, Jamie. I, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of I think similar to, uh, to what you said. I think Peter Drury in the Sky commentary described it as attritional towards the end of the first half. And I think that's definitely what it was for the most part. Um, and he described it as a game of chess, and I sort of I understand that. But I, th- I actually thought it was a pretty poor game. Um, between two sides who looked like they were quite afraid of losing. Um, you know, this game usually has goals in it. Maybe the fact it didn't on this occasion was owing to the fact that Arsenal have I think what was their record? It was something like they haven't they haven't won against they hadn't won against City since I don't want to get this wrong, maybe it was twenty eighteen or something, um, before this. But typically City tend to do the double over them, so perhaps the fact that this game was so attrition away to the fact that Arsenal were taking a bit of a different approach. Um, and even in that, I thought they gave City a bit too much respect in the first half. And Raya in goal in particular was quite lucky not to be punished for um, his rather erratic performance. Got closed down by Alvarez at one point. Um, and that could have easily rebounded off of him and gone into the net. Um, but on the other side of that coin, I don't think City really sort of seized on that themselves. I don't think they played with that much purpose and that kind of allowed Arsenal to grow into the game in the second half. You know, didn't feel like City were winning the ball that hard pitch, didn't feel like they were dominating possession necessarily. And when they did have it, it didn't feel like they were they were doing too much with it. Um, and that allowed Arsenal in that second half to seize the initiative as the home team and actually threaten the City box a little bit without without creating too many cut chances and um, you know on, an, on another day I think this game just peters out and finishes 0-0 and, but ultimately you know the goal that decides it was incredibly fortunate um, obviously it takes a massive deflection off Ake which um, which wrong foots Edison um, but I think that was I think that was Arsenal's reward ultimately for, for trying to play a little bit more on the front foot in the second half for City I think it was kind of a punishment for what was maybe one of their more negative performances I can remember from them in recent times. And yeah, Jamie, I think as you say, they, they massively missed Rodgery. It's become quite apparent in the last few games. Um, so yeah, that was, that's kind of the overarching takeaway, I think. And I think, but I don't think I've come away from the game thinking that Arsenal were any more title contenders than they were last season. I don't come away from it thinking this result means that Arsenal are going to use up City and go that one step further. Um, it's obviously good that they've broken their duck against City and it's good that they've managed to win without some key players. Saka, as you mentioned, Jamie and Martinelli for a half who came on and made a difference. But you have to imagine that City will improve when Rodri comes back. They've still got De Bruyne to come back in. Um, so you have to imagine that they'll pick it up like they always do. Um, 
but yeah, my sort of my, my main takeaway is similar to Jamie. I think I think if you're Liverpool to a lesser extent, Spurs maybe if we are including them in these conversations now, uh, you're probably feeling quite emboldened after watching that and and by City's start to the season. Um, I know I know it's early days in regards to City in regards to Spurs, um, but it does already feel a little bit more open at the top. You know, three points between four sides after eight games. Uh, if that continues after the international break, people might start to wonder if City are struggling a little bit for motivation after essentially winning everything they could possibly win and, you know, attaining that unprecedented treble, well, not unprecedented, but, you know, the, the treble that they've been chasing for so long last season. Um, so, yeah, I think what it points to is kind of hopefully a much tighter, more exciting title for race than we've had over the past few years. Yeah, I pretty much uh, agree with, with both of those guys. Um I, 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 you can't. I didn't watch the game, so you you've just given me a, a pressy of it. But you, you know, you can't argue with the stats. That's the Arsenal's first first win over City in twelve games, and apparently, uh, the first time they've beaten them in a Premier League home game without conceding uh, since twenty twelve, which you know just shows you um, that they're. I think they're learning. They've learned from last season, uh, Arsenal, and and. I'm not sure I would sort of rule out the idea that they can't go one step further. I actually have a have a feeling that they will. And and in terms of what today's result means, certainly for you know Liverpool fans, Spurs fans who were looking at this and thinking, well, this could go any one of three ways. I mean, either to, either of the two teams could win, plus we could end up with a draw. But it doesn't it doesn't really have a, a deep impact on you know how we how we all move forward from here. But but here's what what I think it means uh, in terms of confidence and and in terms of uh, establishing uh, a position at the top of the league, um, especially I think in context of of the the unexpected inconsistency of of United and Ten Hag, and I think this is uh, this is going to be a really challenging uh, next run of fixtures for City. If you look at their next seven games, I just wrote these down. I said, but Brighton. Man U, Bournemouth, Chelsea, Liverpool, Spurs, and Villa. Now, those those games. I mean, as a run of seven games coming up for City, um, that that's gonna that's gonna be a tough ask, I think, for for all of for all of those games. And it, I think it gives Arsenal an opportunity uh, to to establish their position as as maybe being in a position to to you know, go one further than they did last year. So I, I think by Christmas, you could have a situation where Arsenal are again firmly in the driver's seat. And, you know, as I say, they will have learned from from their experiences last season and, and they might not let it slip again the way they did. But but certainly competitively, um, it, I don't I, at this stage one result isn't going to isn't going to make that much difference. But um, but there was one other takeaway that that I uh, I did notice, and I, I'm sure you guys did when I was watching the highlights at the end. Um, the the handshake between the two managers I thought was quite quite interesting and symbolic. It looked like Arteta wanted to, to make a statement by not acknowledging that there was any kind of relationship despite the the hype and the press coverage all all week of that relationship between Pep and or Norteta and obviously there was a, a lot of hype on that relationship prior to the game 
Um, but Arteta's point was that they were they were equals, and and you know he's more than entitled to do that. And I think this is going to be the new dynamic at the top at the top of the Premier League, and the the Pep and Arteta storyline is definitely going to be one that's uh, that's going to uh, pervade through through the rest of the season because you're looking at I think the two the two main competitors for uh, for the title, and also I mean another stat was that Arteta has now beaten all 24 clubs that he has faced as as Arsenal boss so you know with that and again what he has, and his players will have learned from their experience last season i think uh, i think things might be might be the balance might be shifting hmm Sorry, Jamie and Sam. Apparently, Steve not ready to take the bait yet on Tottenham's uh, title charge. No, I, was, after. I, was, I was going to say, let's knock that one on the head, but uh, <laughs> perhaps in the current circumstances, that's probably not the best thing. <laughs> after eight match weeks, best start to a season since 61. Not saying, just saying. So <laughs> apparently, I'm less able to refuse the uh, lure there set by, <laughs> by Jamie and Sam. Um, moving uh, to something that happened in a different match today. Um, Wolves ended up getting a red card today. And if you are watching the season and you're wondering or feeling like there's infinitely more red cards this season than last, you're not wrong. At this stage last season, there were less than five red cards. This year with today's, there have been 19 red cards shown through nine weeks, which is the most at this stage since at least 2015, which is far back as the stats go on the site that I was using. Um, why do you think we've seen such a huge surge in red cards? Because this isn't just a pre-post-VAR line. The average was actually higher the five years before VAR was implemented in the 2019-20 season than the five since, which we are now in the fifth. Um, so yeah, just curious why you guys think it's spiking so heavily this year. Well, I think the start of the season, there always seems to be a new thing that referees are being told to clamp down on. This season, it seems to be descent and time wasting, and we've seen a lot of cheap yellow cards and some red cards that have followed as a result of this new focus. Um, but you normally get to this sort of stage in the season where a handful of games have been played, we're going into the second international break, and the referees normally just stop doing whatever they've been told to focus on. Um, and get back to normal. I think VAR is still having an impact. Now, I support Burnley. We've had two records this season already. I don't think anyone who's ever watched Burnley under Vincent Company would describe us as a dirty team. We don't normally put any tackles in. Um, and both were given by the VAR. And I think it's it's an ongoing issue with VAR, isn't it, that they seem to be looking for reasons to punish players, looking for reasons to disallow goals, looking for reasons to send players off. Uh, one of our red cards was in the opener where Anasonori's put in a late rash tackle. It was given as a yellow on the pitch and then upgraded to a red. I think most people would have been okay if I had stayed a yellow. I don't think it really needed to be changed. Um, and then one where Lyle Foster's just lost his temper and elbowed someone in the chest that wasn't seen. So you can say that's what VAR's for, right? To see the things that the referees didn't see. Um, but again, it was, it was a bit of a nothing incident, really. Um, it, it might be that today we've already seen a little bit of rowing back on that. One thing that we didn't mention when we were talking about the Arsenal City game was the, I guess because Arsenal won anyway. But the fact that Matteo Kovacic was probably quite lucky not to be sent off himself um, 
he had a yellow card for something that could have been a red. Then he had another tackle that looked very much like a yellow card if he hadn't already got a yellow card. Um, it was a bit surprising that Guardiola left him on so long when he was running that risk of being sent off. Um, Kovacic was really quite fortunate, in my opinion. Um, so I think it's it's a combination of this clamp down on things like descent and time-wasting, the fact that VAR seems to be insisting on re-refereeing things as they happen. Um, and I think everyone really wants to see 11 against 11 in a fair contest as much as possible. So hopefully everyone will calm down a bit after the break and we'll get back to seeing matches where tackling is allowed. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, the coverage this one today was interesting. Like, hundred percent should that. I, I I didn't think that first one quite warranted being overturned. It was one of those ones. I think they uh, on Sky they described it as a kind of you know just on the borderline of a yellow and a red, and there wasn't enough in it for it to be upgraded. I don't think, but um, the fact it was stupid enough to go and make an almost identical challenge about five ten minutes later, um, and Michael Oliver dismissed it so soon. Um, sort of straight away was fairly ridiculous um, and also just kind of highlighted further the ridiculousness of VAR and that they can only intervene if it is um, if it is deemed to be a straight red. I think with the also with those stats um, 18 red cards being shown at this stage of the season um, it would be interesting to know how many of those have been straight reds how many have been uh, as a result of, of two yellows because as Jamie mentioned there have been some those new rules that were introduced at the start of the season about players being players can be booked for surrounding the referee, um, players can be booked for waving an imaginary card at the referee, for example, the whole top, clamp down on time wasting, etc. Um, it'd be interesting to see if that has actually had an impact. Um, but then, as, as Jamie alluded to as well, the fact with VAR, it's kind of legacy issues anyway already in the sense that every challenge slowed down, um, looks worse, and it was in real time, I think. Curtis Jones's red card last week against Spurs was another example of that. I know that one hasn't. I don't think that one got overturned after their appeal. But, um, but yeah, I think that one was quite was quite harsh. And it's always something that you're going to have with VAR is that when those replays are slowed down, um, they're always going to look worse. Um, and then maybe I don't know another thing that could be having an impact is just the fact that the games are longer now. Like we've got so much more injury time. Um, there's more opportunity for players to mm. pick up those kind of petty those petty yellow cards um, for time wasting or whatever it may be. Um, and perhaps the fact that the, game, that the games are so much longer, like players are just making more tired challenges. They may be a little bit later to the ball. Um, yeah. So perhaps that, I think that, you know, these are all factors perhaps. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I personally, I haven't, I haven't noticed it too much to be honest. It hasn't really impacted Palace's games. Uh, the only red card in one of our matches was when Tommy Asu, uh, was sent off a little bit harshly for Arsenal, um, and the scoreline didn't change after that. I think I think Luton maybe have had a couple of opportunities that they haven't taken. I think they played against both Wolves and obviously Spurs this weekend for a large period of the game against ten men. Um, but for some reason, I don't know. I feel like these incidents tend to happen a lot more in big games uh, between the title challenges or those or those sort of in the mix for top four, whether highly charged atmospheres and there's more of a tendency for players to fly into challenges and um, unfortunately Palace aren't really involved in a lot of those. Yeah, I, I totally agree with uh, the, the points about the um, the start of the season and the mindset at the start of the season and the resulting 
uh, excess of, of petty yellow cards, uh, which inevitably lead to uh, to more reds at this point of the point of the season. But I, I just I have a feeling that this season will be the end of VAR in its in its current format. The league, I, I, obviously, I don't think they'll make a big deal of announcing anything that comes near to scrapping it or or anything like that. Simply because there's too much invested in it. But I, I think. Going beyond the, just the goal line alerts now, I think technology has run its course simply because too many managers and players don't think it adds anything positive to the game but just creates more problems than it solves. So <clears throat> I have a feeling that the authorities are going to have to find a way to alleviate the issues that bars encroachment further into the game is causing. And, you know, I, 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 as you know, Kev, I was I was a believer in using technology to the – to the fullest extent that we could because, you know, I, I, I thought that the problems came when the referees didn't have the same view of incidents as viewers at home. And and, and that goes, you know, way back to the, the Pedro Mendes goal at Old Trafford. And, and it made sense for everyone to know what was a goal and what wasn't. But then, you know, VAR became something bigger than I think any of us expected. And and it has now, I think, outlived its usefulness simply because it's it continues each week. And of course, I I hold my hands up and say the the Liverpool game, the Spurs Liverpool game, is a complete example of this. VAR has outlived its usefulness, and I I fully expect there to be some kind of recalibration of how it's used within the um within the game with the, with the intention of generating some greater consistency and maybe that requires it to be responsible for fewer decisions uh, but you know i i don't know but i i would i would expect something something some kind of um bounce back some kind of pushback against uh the extent to which var now affects outcomes just to jump back in on this i was reading today in the guardian the um, Norway has introduced AAR and a lot of the clubs are unhappy about it. There's been huge protests in the stands, supporters leaving games. Um, and that's one of the biggest pushbacks that we've really seen in European football. Sweden haven't introduced it. Apparently they're the only one of Europe's top 30 leagues that hasn't had it. So if Steve's got a point that the tide is sort of turning on AAR, and I think one of the issues is that it's being used so differently to how everyone was told at first that it was going to be used for like the right. clearing obvious thing, right. all that kind of stuff. Now it's used for everything all the time, it seems. So there are parts of Europe where things are in flux regarding VAR. I thought it was kind of here to stay and we were all going to have to get used to it, but maybe there is some hope. Yep, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, as I say, I think it, it, there's too much invested in it. Certainly the Premier League has too much money and credibility invested in it, but they're gradually, with, with every contentious decision, they're undermining its credibility still further. And the fact that managers and players alike now put no stake in it, um, it, it just adds to the, the 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 pressure for something to something to give. It, maybe it's just a maybe it's just a basic simplification of how the system works. Uh, that, as you say, we thought we were going to get at the start when it was supposed to be um, when it was supposed to be in, introduced to to do away with refereeing error. And now we know that that's that's not 
referees are fallible. Of course they are, and that's a that's a part of the game. But uh, but now it's creating more problems than it, than it's solving. Hmm. I did like um, Pasacoglu's uh, discussion about people thought that as soon as VAR came in, that every all of a sudden everything would be objectively correct. And it, suddenly errors wouldn't exist, but it's still people running it. So there will inherently still be errors, which I know some took as him just trying to pass off the uh, Liverpool goal that led to all that drama. Um, but I, I do think there's an element of that. It is not ever going to be perfect. And the closer we get to, or sorry, the the more technology that's included, I think he's right. The, the, the more people assume that it will be inherently better. And I'm not sure we've seen that thus far. Um, we'll wrap up this opening section uh, talking about managers. In seven of the last ten Premier League seasons, at least one manager had been sacked by this point, the second week of October. Are you surprised that, uh, yeah, that no one has been sacked thus far? And do you think we'll start to see one? Because obviously the uh, international breaks are when it's easiest because you get those two weeks. Yeah, I'm hoping you're not tempting fate with this with this question Kev. I think one of the <laughs> apologies to any manager that gets sacked this is on me <laughs> yeah it will be completely your fault if this happens then. I think it's partly the the three promoted teams have all started really badly and I think even though there's some Berlin fans that expect us to do really well I think more broadly speaking most people thought that they were going to be at the bottom so they are performing in line with expectations. It's too early for, for sort of panicking in the hope of inspiring a turnaround there. Um, and all three teams, their managers did incredible work, obviously getting promoted, but in the case of Sheffield Giants and Unluted, really against expectations. So they've got so much credit in the bank. Um, Paul Heckingbottom can survive that Newcastle defeat. I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon. They've obviously had some terrible luck with injuries as well with Chris Bash in the list. It's that terrible, terrible injury over the weekend. Um, so I think those three are, are going to be fine for, for a good while. The one that's really under pressure is obviously Bournemouth. Um, I read a lot of things on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, over the summer about how they'd bought all these great players. They had an exciting manager. They were going to be great. They were going to be the neutral's favourite. Uh, they haven't won any games. And they've still got Dominic Solanke up front. So I don't know how good they're going to be. Um, they've got relatively new owners, haven't they? Bournemouth they had a takeover, so they might be itchy trigger fingers, but they've put so much faith in in the, the Spanish fella, the new players. They might try and be a bit more patient there. Some of the other struggles, you look at like Everton, they've got no money. Dash just about kept them up last season. They couldn't afford to sack him, even if they wanted to. We've had a couple of good results recently, so it looks like they've maybe turned a corner. Um, but I, I'm in favour of managers getting more patience. I think it's too easy to just be like, we've lost a few games, let's change the manager. Um, I think if you look at historical Premier League seasons, the teams that have changed the managers, it doesn't necessarily lead to any improvement anyway. So you spend a lot of money sacking a manager and a lot of money bringing in a new manager and it doesn't necessarily make any difference. Um, historically, the correlation between wage bills and finishing position is extremely, extremely close. Um, I know we all like to think that managers can make a big difference, but it tends to be marginal gains, really, at most clubs. It's as simple as how much money are you spending on the players? 
um, and that tends to correspond to the league position. Broadly speaking, obviously, there's the odd outlier. Um, but yeah, I think <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if, if Bournemouth did make the change over the break. And it's, it's entirely down to Kev. Yeah, I think um, I'd, I'd, I had a look at the table um, today and I think when you go down it, there's just not really any surprises. There hasn't been... I think on, on sort of both sides of it, really, there's not really that surprise package towards the top of the table. There's not really a, there's not really anyone who you think is struggling massively towards the bottom. Um, and as sort of Jamie says, you know, that the promoted sides are usually the ones that you're looking at to maybe make some sort of knee-jerk reaction really early into the season after having a, a very bad start. But I think increasingly with some, especially with a couple of the sides that got promoted this season, you know, Luton, for example, um, you get the impression that some of the teams that get promoted and don't have the same, just don't have the resources to necessarily compete with everyone else in the Premier League. They're quite happy to, you know, spend that season there, do as well as they can, take those riches, go back to the, down to the championship stronger and have another crack at it and try and get back into it the following year. And, you know, use those riches that come with being in the Premier League to improve everything else associated with the club. Um, and that's kind of the impression I'm getting with Luton. Um, and for that reason, I kind of think that, you know, Rob Edwards, whatever happens, he's going to be there until the end of this campaign because he's proved already that he can get them out of the championship. Um, you know, you look at Burnley, like Jamie said, you, a few people kind of expected them to maybe have a better start to the season, but they've had such a tough run of fixtures that I'm not sure anyone really knows quite how good they are yet and obviously company has quite a lot of goodwill from the way essentially completely transformed the way Burnley played last year um, so I think people are still kind of excited to see how they get on under him once you know perhaps a more winnable run of fixtures comes along um, and yeah as, as James said Heckenbottom is kind of the one that you look at um, you know maybe even <laughs> I don't know they they seem to be shipping goals for fun at the moment. They've got one point as well as Bournemouth. Maybe they're the ones that might look at this international break as an opportunity for a change. Um, but again, as James said, if you can survive that Newcastle result, then maybe it's going to be around for a while. And I think just more broadly speaking, I think the ones that maybe coming into the season that people were tipping to go, um, I think David Moyes was one that people had talked about for a while. I've never understood this, but a lot of West Ham fans that I've spoken to have towards the end of last season especially just weren't very happy with David Moyes and you got the impression that pressure would build on him a little bit if they didn't start the season well but you know they have started the season well if they're in they're well in the top half they've had some really good results um seem to have rediscovered the league form that maybe deserted them a little bit last year um and have also been getting on well in Europe uh, and then similarly, I guess maybe another one that you'd look at was was Ange at Tottenham. You know, a lot of people, no one necessarily expect, except for maybe Celtic fans, no one expects him to do as well as he as he has done so far. And if if he had got off to a difficult start, then people might have been looking at him as one. Um, similarly, Gary O'Neill has started picking up some points at Wolves after a dis- difficult start, and then Sean Dyche, who Jamie mentioned, um, has managed to get a couple of results with Everton recently, and has also. They probably can't afford to sack him anyway, so that's maybe why he'll be in the job a little bit longer. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think it is a massive surprise that we haven't seen anyone get sacked yet. I think, in a very strange way, the Premier League's uh, going sort of according to form so far this campaign. So 
um, yeah, not massively surprised that no one's gone, but also on the back of us discussing this, wouldn't be surprised if someone goes in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I, th- I agree with the idea that, you know, teams this early are basically living up to or, or down to their the expectations that we all had of them. So I think I think that's right. No matter how, how bad things get for the for the three promoted teams, I, I really can't see any of their managers getting the chop, certainly before Christmas, but as you say, probably uh probably running the course um of the season. I in in part I think also because there's a there's a shared responsibility across the organization about um, how the individual clubs prepared for the upcoming season. Uh, and I, I, if you're going to take responsibility as the board um, for why you're, why you're failing at a higher level, then that part of that uh, failure is going to reflect on you, not just on the manager. So I, I don't think we've reached the tipping point um, just yet beyond how difficult everyone really expected the season to be, or or we haven't got to a point where it's too early for you know a, a, any team to be terminally detached. So I don't think there's there's going to be that that knee jerk reaction. But also, I mean, you know, to an extent, the same goes for whoever might be the first manager uh, to lose their job. It's, it's it's not so much whether it's whether it's too early to make a change. I think it depends on. <clears throat> factors that are not always within the team within the club's control i mean like uh, who else is out there who else is available for example it's not just you know change for change's sake is is uh, can can actually work uh, the the new manager bounce doesn't always arrive and it can work in reverse and and instill panic in a team you know so um I, there's also you know, the, the consideration of you know, if you change the manager and the management structure and you go to the expense of getting rid of your existing coach and bringing in a new coaching staff, how does the club ownership, how, how prepared are the club ownership to change the trajectory of what was clearly going wrong, whether that's, you know, whether that's happening off the pitch which, which you know, is just as important as the team's form on it. So I think there are so many factors, um, as, as both of you guys said, certainly the expectations for the promoted teams were were exactly how they're playing out to a certain extent. So I, I, I don't think there's an incentive at, at the moment for for any of the lower teams to, to make a change for the reasons that you guys uh, articulately pointed out. Gotcha. Yeah, obviously great points from all of you, especially the fact that it's my fault if anything happens over this international break. (laughs) Um, We'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with club-specific questions for each of our guests. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
All right, and we are back. Jamie, we'll start off with you talking about the Burnley match. There may have been some confidence heading into this one since Chelsea had been struggling, but obviously a, a sizable defeat. Well, what did you make of the match, and were you surprised by the result? Yeah, I mean, obviously there was a lot more positivity going into this one. Having won at Luton in the week, that was such a big game. Getting that first win of the season, it felt like a bit of a weight had been lifted, really. And especially in the manner of it, we showed such character to, to get the winner about a minute after Luton had equalised and they'd had so much pressure, it felt like that goal was coming. So then go down the other end and score straight away and then hold on to win. It really felt like a sort of marker for our season. So to then have essentially the same defeat that we've had at home three, four times already this season, really, really disappointing. Um, the tricky thing with the home performance is, is that we seem to start games quite well, but as soon as things start going against us, heads begin to drop a bit. The mentality is not very good. We seem to lose belief very quickly. Um, and the upsetting thing for me about Saturday's game was that Chelsea didn't even have to play that well. They're still in the bottom half of the table. They're not a very good team yet. They've got all these talented young players who might develop and gel, but they haven't yet. Um and we made it far too easy for them, really. Raheem Sterling looked like he had an incredible game on paper. He wasn't that good. And I I like Sterling. I rate him highly. I think he's a very good player and should still be in the England squad. I don't really understand why they've moved on from him. Um, but we made him look like a world beater. There were some real curious decisions from, from Vincent Company. And this is becoming a bit of a trend as well. Uh, he made four changes to the team, having won at Luton, which in itself seems odd. But a couple of them seem to be rotation more than players being dropped. And if you're resting players going into an international break, I just don't think that makes any sense whatsoever. I couldn't get my head around the team when I saw it. And the way they were lining up, I just didn't understand it. We had Vitinho playing at right back for the first time, I think, this season, and Sterling just ran him ragged all game. I think he took him on in the first five minutes. Vitinho dived in, completely missed the ball on the player. And he just set the tone for the afternoon. There was no surprise that the first goal came from Vitinho allowing Sterling to run at him. Then he gave away the penalty for the second. And after that, the game's essentially over. Um, the other concern I have about company, other than that he's making all these changes and it's that people are saying it's a bit roulette and Tom Ball were team selections. It just seemed random who's on the team sheet week in, week out. The fact that we start second halves so badly, every game it seems like the opposition come out of the traps really well after the break and we're just really sluggish. I've lost count of the number of games that we've lost in the 5, 10, 15 minute period after the second half got started. And also when we make substitutions, when things are going wrong, we get even worse. It's really concerning for me. Um, we talked on the show before about the play style and whether there's a need to be a bit more pragmatic, but the concern for me right now is that companies wedded to this play style of the slow possession football, playing it out from the back. It was so successful last season at a lower level when we hammered everyone in the championship, won promotion easily. A lot harder in the Premier League and our players are worse. Our defence is worse. Our goalkeeper's worse. We signed players to play centre-back who aren't very good at playing it out from the back. It just all seems a bit confused right now, but the fixture list hasn't been kind, so maybe when we play the teams around us, like Luton, maybe things will be different. Yeah, you touched on both sides of the pitch, which was where it was going to go next, because uh, you currently have the second lowest shots on target, fourth 
lowest goals scored and the second most goals conceded seems like a pretty comprehensive issue but as you say do do you think that is largely the people that you've played or like you said maybe they're not being a a firm plan as to what the identity should be since the way you were playing last year isn't bringing the results that that one would have hoped i think it's a mixture i think it's it's still quite a small sample size right we've only played a handful of games the home games we've lost them all but they've been against teams that we're going to be at the top. We've played Spurs, Villa, Manchester United, Chelsea, Man City. So arguably they're five of what's likely to be, what, the top six, top eight, depending on Man United get that together. So it's been tough. Um, we've got a lot of young players. So I think the plan is that they're going to adapt and get used to the Premier League and develop and improve and just settle in time. Personally, I think we're playing too many young players, but that's certainly what, what companies seems to be gambling on. Um, but I'm I'm really hopeful that there's a bit of a rethink over the international break. I think we've got too many young players in the team at the same time. Um, you mentioned there the attacking statistics. We actually look quite good going forward. I think our best player this season has probably been Lyle Foster, even though he had that three-match ban. He scored three Premier League goals, I think, had one very harshly ruled out as well at Nottingham Forest, um, which is the game he got sent off. So. Foster really looks the part for me as a Premier League striker. The problem is that we've not really created enough chances. The supporting cast isn't really kicking on yet. The midfield doesn't protect the defence well enough. And like I mentioned, the goalkeeper's a downgrade on the one that we had last year for me. So I think there's a couple of obvious changes for companies to make over the break. One, you can play Aro Miric, who was our goalkeeper last season, did a fantastic job. I'm not really sure why he's decided James Trafford isn't improving because there's no evidence to suggest that he is. Um, and I think we need more experience in midfield. So although it feels like my answer to whenever things aren't going right is play Jack Cork, um, my answer is play Jack Cork um, and have a bit of ballast in the midfield and a leader, someone who's going to make sure that the, the heads of those young players doesn't start to drop when things start going against us. Gotcha. Well, yeah, hopefully uh, things turn around for you because we like you around here and we, we want to make sure you're up for the Premier League again next season. Hopefully you just get some wins. It must be very jarring after the uh, roughly infinite wins that you had last season <laughs> that this season they just aren't coming as much. All right, Sam, we'll come on to you next to talk about Crystal Palace. Probably would have been more fun to talk about the win against United last week. So apologies from a scheduling perspective. Um, but the other big thing to talk about has to be all the injuries that are going on at the moment. Obviously, it leads to a nil-nil draw against Nottingham Forest. But just curious your thoughts on, on why you've suffered so much in the injury department and when and if things will get better. Yeah, I think there's a, I think it's up for a lot of Palace fans. The reason's fairly obvious. Um, it was an incredibly thin squad coming into the new season and, um, it's obviously even thinner now. I think Sky Sports put up a graphic yesterday of all the injuries. And if you went down it, there's probably five or six players in there, um, out of the 11 that were listed that you could make an argument for that they'd, that they'd be starting for us, really. You know, so obviously as a, uh, Elise, uh, Joe Ward, another one, uh, Jefferson Lerma, uh, Matthias Franco, who we signed in the summer, um, kind of named by some people to be the Zaha replacement. Whether that's true, I don't know, but he obviously would have added a little bit more attacking impetus, um, which we've been severely lacking. Um, and I think that was kind of, that's been sort of impacted the way that we've had to set up recently. You know, our last two home games have been 
Fulham and Nottingham Forest, and both of those games have been no-nil draws. And we've essentially had to go into those games to sit back, soak up pressure, and try to hit them on the counter-attack, which is probably more what you would associate with with the away team doing. But I think given the players that we have available to us, um, that's kind of what we've had to do. Um, I mean, Odds and Edward came back in yesterday. He's our top scorer of the season, but even he's been rushed back from a hamstring injury, didn't look fit at all. Um, we managed to win at Old Trafford, as you mentioned last week, somehow with a front three of Jordan Ayew, John Philippe Mateta and Jeffrey Schlopp. And I think if you asked any Palace fan to name their preferred front three, uh, Ayew is perhaps the only one out of those who would appear um, on some occasions, definitely not all. Um, so I think to have got to 12 points from seven games, to have only lost at home to Arsenal and away to Villa is given all of those injuries is a pretty solid return. Um, it's even more impressive to kind of be unbeaten in those last three, uh, given that's when the injury crisis has really started to set in. Um, it hasn't been pretty at all, as I mentioned, with, with Fulham and Forrest. Um, but yeah, it does very much feel like our hands are tied at the moment and there is only one way that we're able to play. Um, and I think in terms of the reasons for those injuries, uh, it is, it is quite interesting. I mean, our injury record under Vieira wasn't, that bad and before that I do seem to remember players being injured under Hodgson a little bit more often so whether the way he sets us up is a little there's sort of more wear and tear um for one of a better one of a better phrase but um but I think it just comes back to the size of the squad really like I think Matt Wisdom at the Athletic tweeted yesterday that we've used 18 players this season which is the least out of any other side in the league, um, which speaks to which goes back to like the summer transfer activity. Really, we lost we lost a lot of players. We lost Zaha, who was obviously the most important one, and we only signed four. Um, and out of those, only Lerma has really featured regularly so far. Um, and I think it's a bit of a shame, really, because at the end of last season, I think we saw that Hodgson wasn't here just to play negative football when Elise, Eze, Edward were all fit. We played some pretty exciting stuff. Um, so to have lost all of those, it's meant that he's had to revert to type a little bit or at least the type people associate with the Roy Hodgson team the most in order for us to keep the points tally ticking over. Um, and in all, in all honesty, I think a lot of people feel quite sorry for him because it's definitely not what, what he would have signed up for. I think when we announced in the summer that he'd be staying on all of the quotes from both Hodgson and Steve Parrish, the chairman, were about the squad probably being good enough for a top 10 finish. Um, that was kind of a good maybe month or a few weeks before the transfer window shut. And I think when Hodgson said that, he probably thought we'd be making a few more making a few more signings and probably wouldn't be as affected by injuries as we have been. Um, but I think most fans are kind of sympathetic with the circumstances. Um, and most of the frustration hasn't actually been directed at Hodgson and the way that we're playing, but rather probably at the owners for what was really a pretty lacklustre summer. Um, you know, we needed reinforcements in some really obvious areas. We didn't make them. And it's kind of been a familiar story for us since we got promoted to the Premier League, to be honest, in that we go through, we sort of go through the motions during transfer windows with, at like every club, we'll get linked to a lot of players. Um, that one or two signings are close, uh, but we'll kind of walk away from the negotiating table because the deal doesn't quite suit us and we kind of hedge our bets on having a thin squad and just hoping that the best players within that aren't going to get injured. Um, but eventually that kind of catches up with you and I think that's been the case 
that's been the case this season. It does lead to some pretty ugly situations um, like the ones we have at the moment. Um, so I think, yeah, over the next couple of weeks of international break, we'll really be hoping that some of those players make a bit of a miraculous recovery because so many of the injuries as well were sort of hamstrings, muscular injuries that you, it's quite difficult to put um, to put a time frame on and not the type of injury where you'd want to rush someone back. So, um, so yeah, fingers crossed the international break, we were able to get a few of those players back to fitness and see a bit of a stronger side than we did yesterday. Yeah, and I'm sure you're really wanting to get those players back since the first two after the break are Newcastle and Tottenham, and then obviously Jamie's mighty Burnley. Um, so yeah, you're gonna you're gonna need some players back um, for that. But like you said, hamstring injuries are just so persistent, where if they don't get fully right, it's just so easy to have a recurrence of that injury. So uh, I guess I just hope that you guys make the right call with with that type of injury. Um, we will uh, wrap up the club section with Steve. Uh, a very eloquent, a very eloquent question for myself, but um, we couldn't, could we? <laughs> I was waiting for that. It depends what you mean by the question, Kev, and I, I think there are several scenarios, several things that can play out in that in that answer. Could we win the league? this year i don't think so but why not um we're certainly in the mix for top four and deservedly so i think but there's still two or three teams definitely two probably three teams better and deeper than us that are probably a better bet for uh for the title and a lot is going to depend on how deep they go into the champions league so uh that that's that question could we could we be better than we have been the past few schizophrenic seasons? We already are. We already are. Could we uh, learn from this season, adapt from this season, and build on what seems to be a really powerful and potent relationship between this great new manager that we have and and his players absolutely if you don't believe that you're not a spurs fan i absolutely think that the, the only way is up from here could we could we play with style and confidence in a in a way that that almost makes me agree with those of my friends who say we've got our tottenham back kev i've got to tell you i said to patrick the other day my friend patrick who's been on your show it might even be it might even be that we needed Harry to leave to free up this the the freedom give the freedom to the rest of the squad and let them come through and Ange I think is it's early days we're we're eight games into the season but he seems like the missing piece he seems like the sort of manager that is capable of getting performances out of players that we knew were deep in there somewhere but we just couldn't see them so it might have it might be the turning point when when we lost Harry um that that it was necessary it was a necessary step to rebuild and reset this team could we win the league this season i don't think so but i it's going to be fun watching us try yeah the harry point is an interesting one i remember tweeting out when um at the fan forum levy did confirm that there is actually a buyback in Harry Kane's deal, which I was shocked by because it seemed like Bayern were either willing to go up to the price we were asking 
without a buyback clause or pay about 20 million less than we were asking and include one. And we ended up actually getting both. And I very excitedly was like, wow, that's like great business from Levy. And you know, the fact that we can bring him back when we want to is great. And it got a very tepid response. Do you think that's partially because of like what you're saying? They're like this new era that we're already feeling, (laughs) albeit just eight games in from a premier league context. Um, that people are just feeling like, yeah, we are playing better. The opponents don't know as much what we are going to do. It isn't just lump it up to Kane, which I'm sure would have been the strategy in a match like Gluten yesterday. And so people are more interested in where this project is going than, you know, bringing back our all-time leading goal scorer. Having said that, though, as we were talking about in the previous question about which manager might get sacked first, there was actually a, a point at which a lot of money was on before the league started. A lot of money was on Ange to, to be the first to get the job. So in a way, I think what Levy was doing with the buyback was just hedging, just a, a, you know, a straight hedge. Can we, can we pick this back up again? The man's, the, Harry is a, 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 a globally recognized strike force player that you know what you're going to get with him. So why would we not take the opportunity to bring him back? Now, it might be we're, we're at a point where Ange doesn't want him back. You know, if we're um, – and we'll leave the Richarlison question aside for just a moment because we're, we're going to come on to, to a player uh, discussion. But if, if Ange is able to take the, the, the spirit that he has in this team without Harry – and then add Harry back to it, he's risking upsetting that dynamic completely. And I, I think that would be um, that would be a, a detrimental situation for both for both of them. I'm not sure I mean Harry wants to turn the page as well. I'm not sure Harry would want to come back to a scenario where um and and I don't know about the rest of the Spurs fans, but I, I want to win the league without Harry. I really do. I mean, Harry's Harry's legacy at Spurs is already assured, but I I want to be seen to be a team without him. I want to be seen to be a good team without him. And I think we're heading in that direction. Do I think we're ready to win the league this year? No. Uh, but I think we're positioning ourselves to be there or thereabouts for the next couple of seasons. So. Mm. But the Harry, the Harry question is a, is a, is a very interesting one. And you're, you're absolutely on nail on the head about the buyback clause. Yeah. I'm just wondering if, if, uh, not to make a comparison to a club that we don't have much love for, but it feels like this year's Tottenham could be somewhat similar to last year's Arsenal. And if you manage to get into the top four or top five, depending on how all that, uh, lands. Being able to bring back one of the best strikers uh, in the world is <laughs> it's not a bad option to have, especially, as you say, with depth probably being the biggest issue. Yes. Son can't play more than 60 minutes of football right now. We've yeah. seen Richarlison not exactly bury his chances. So yep. um, striker may certainly be a position that we may be in need of in future years. But would um, Harry want to come back? I, I'm, I'm not convinced. Great question. Great question. Uh, one that we'll have to deal with another day, uh, but we will wrap up with player watch. We're just curious um, from your sides uh, if there's a player at your club that you've been a little disappointed with thus far that you thought would maybe uh, be able to help out more than they have thus far. Yeah, I mean, I've mentioned him a couple of times already, and I feel bad for the lad because he's made such a big jump. James Trafford was playing League One football last season, and now we're asking him to play in the Premier League. 
fair enough, over the summer he won the the under-21 European Championships with England and was the hero in the finals, the penalty. Um, but at the moment, I'm not seeing anything to suggest he was worth the large fee that we paid for him. And the fee's not his fault, so I have sympathy with him. Um, but last season, Aro Muric had so much improvement over the course of the season. The start of the season, he was he was a bit ropey, he made mistakes, but he developed so much and he's such a character as well. I think the fans really took to him. He's a bit of a cult hero. Um, and for him to lose his place to Trapper's essentially a kid um, who, like I said, was playing two, two leagues below last season. It's a big, big jump and it looks it so far. It looks a bit out of his depth. And you just handed um, him the starting job, right? There wasn't like a battle for it? No, not at all. So the way I saw it at the start of the season was that Murich would probably start with all the pressure on him to keep his place. And as soon as he made a mistake, he'd be out. And although it would have been harsh, I think you could have understood it if Murich should have started with the gloves and then it would have been a, they're yours to lose. And if you lose them, fair enough. But the fact Trav had started and over pre-season, Murich had arguably outperformed him. Um, I don't think it was really fair. I think it said a pretty poor message to Murich and some of the other players from the Champions team who've been pushed aside a little bit by the new signings. I think we should have probably started with more of the team that was successful last season. Um, but the main issue is that Trafford just hasn't shown the skill set to play company system. Um, we spent all this money and the fee's not his fault. I always keep caveating with it's not his fault that we decided it was worth nearly £20 million pounds, even though he never played above League One. Um, one of the most expensive goalkeepers of all time, even though he's so young. Um, he doesn't have the range of passing needed to play, not just in company system, to be fair, but in the Premier League. Almost every team now plays it out from the back, right? And you keep it and you keep it and you wait for them to press and then you play it over the top. That's how it works. You need the medium and long-range passing from the goalkeepers in order to make that work. Trafford doesn't have it. He just doesn't have it. And yes, he's young and he might get better, but right now he's nowhere near ready. He's nowhere near ready. Um, so for me, that's the most obvious change to make in the team. And he's, he's not on his own. A lot of the new signings haven't really done it yet. And I've suggested on Twitter slash X slash whatever it's called this week that some of them might be duds. Um, I think it's maybe harsh to call Trafford a dud when he's come with such a big reputation and the pedigree of coming from Man City and England number 21s and all that. He's got this tag of being a future England number one, but there's been absolutely nothing to suggest he's that player yet. Yeah, I think at Palace, um, he actually went off injured yesterday. Um, but a lot of Palace fans would probably say Jeffrey Schlopp uh, is the player they've been most disappointed with thus far. Um, now, in an ideal world, I think 30-year-old Jeffrey Schlopp, who was signed under Sam Allardyce, probably wouldn't be starting for us in 2023. Um, but that's where we have been for the first eight games of the season because of the injury crisis, because of the lack of... Uh, summer transfer window activity um, and unfortunately for Jeffrey Schlupp the position he's been playing in for the most part is the position that was vacated by Wilfred Zaha um, so it's not really a fair comparison but like man he's been really really bad um, you can usually rely on Schlupp to do a job um, I think 
over the past few seasons, we've probably used him more in midfield and he has been fairly good at sort of making runs beyond the striker, being a bit of a goal threat. And you can usually rely on him being a sort of solid six out of 10, really. And whether it's been Hodgson or Vieira um, before that, you know, managers seem to trust him and like to use him. Um, but it does feel a little bit like we've been carrying him in the first eight games of the season. You know, he, he hasn't been creating chances. He hasn't been threatening in the forward areas. You don't really notice he's on the pitch until he subbed off after about 70 minutes. Um, and despite all the injuries, despite how desperate we are for players at the moment, we were a much better team when he went off yesterday and was replaced by Jez Raksaki, who's a, who's a youngster from, from the academy. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think I'd say Schlapp and he's kind of become a bit of a lightning rod really for the frustrations that some Palace fans do have with, with that summer window that I talked about earlier and the frustrations that some fans do have with the owners. Um, a lot of people don't really think he should be anywhere near the starting 11 and also sort of see him blocking the path of some of our academy products, despite the fact that he hasn't been performing. So, so yeah, I think in a, when we've had a fairly solid start to the season and most players have performed fairly well. He's probably been the the one negative that a lot of people would point to. Um, as for Spurs, Kev, uh, I'll be honest and uh, I'll say generally there there hasn't been one player that I've been disappointed with or or disappointed even to see their name in the lineup, which you 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 know we've talked about in the past is is something that characterizes how people look at um, uh, at Spurs and Spurs lineups in, in recent years. Every player, I think, is in the process of adapting to the manager's system, and it's it's bringing even more out of players we already knew were capable of, of good things. And I think Kulisevsky particularly is benefiting from that. Players, you know, for sure have off games, and certainly Richarlison has struggled a little more than than we would have hoped I think um but he's first and foremost a confidence player I mean those those two early chances that he had in yesterday's game for example I mean if one of those goes in uh and arguably he should have scored both of them but one of one of those goes in he has a completely different game and of course within the context of course his his honesty and and talking about his psychological issues I think that'll only help him just getting it out in the in the in the open and and talking about it publicly. Um, maybe I, I might have expected a little more impact off the bench from Manor Solomon, uh, but now you know he's going to be out for a period and we'll he'll have to start again from from the bottom of the pile. So I definitely feel for him. But you know, by the same token, we have Rodrigo Betancourt come back into the team relatively soon uh one of our best players last season so you you get the sense that the 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 entity that is the team that is the squad is healing itself almost in a way um as a one-off in terms of disappointment uh as a one-off uh, i was disappointed with how basuma picked up that red card yesterday uh uncharacteristically stupid of him um and i hope he learned something from it and i have a feeling Ange will definitely have uh, have said something similar to him. Uh, so generally, I think the team's in a place where um, the, the the feeling of winning and playing relatively well is lifting all all the boats. Uh, and in terms of what we were talking about in the previous the previous question, in terms of building a a post Kane identity for this Spurs team, it really helps that the burdens being shared 
you know, across a, a whole number of players, not just falling on one or two. So, you know, for example, the combination of Romero and Van de Ven uh, and with Vicario stepping up the way he has, I mean, that sends as much confidence through the rest of the team when they're on the same page as, as when Kane and Son were, were combining the way they did. And, and, and even even if the end result isn't being measured in goals and assists, and I think that's the important thing. We're, we're not really going to judge this team on where they finish this year. We're going to judge them on how they're playing, how well they're playing, how well they're gelling together, and how well they're responding to uh, to Postacoglu. So in terms of disappointments, um, very, very few. I'm, I'm happy to be able to say that. Gotcha. Well, we'll wrap things up there. So if you guys would like to tell folks where they could find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time. Yeah, thanks for having me on as always. It's been a pleasure. Um, I write about Burnley for the No Name Never newsletter, which goes out via Substack. It's free to subscribe. Um, I'll post the link on Twitter as well, so you can get me there at Jamie Smith Sport. Cheers, Kev. Thanks for having me back on. Always good to hear the views of Jamie and Steve as well. Um, I've been Sam Carp, and for anyone who wants to follow me on Twitter, you can get me at Sam double underscore Carp. Thanks again, Kevin. That was another fun uh, discussion. Thanks, guys. And um, my name's Steve McGookin. You can get me on Twitter at Steve McGookin. And if you want to read my non-football uh, writing, uh, it's at statesofplayproject.com. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on that one website at Kevroff and the show at EPL Roundtable. And you can also find the show by searching EPL Roundtable in any of your podcast clients. Um, but huge thanks to these three for coming on today and <laughs> putting up with uh, whatever's going on in my brain and folks at home. We hope you keep listening. <laughs>